You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hey, everybody. This is Wake Up Call, the podcast, and joining me today for another edition of the Hashtag Femme Doctor Series is Dr. Rocio Salas Whalen, MD, who is an endocrinologist in New York. Dr. Salas Whalen is a triple board certified physician with broad experience across all facets of endocrinology with a particular emphasis on obesity, diabetes, and thyroid disorders. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to do this. Great. I'm excited you said yes. And I have to say when I think endocrinology, I automatically just think in general terms, hormones. And as a layman, I don't even know all of what that implies. So I'm hoping you can clear some of that up for us today. Well, you're right to think hormones with endocrinology because that's, that's the specialty of, of uh, it's hormone specialty is endocrinology. And we deal with all types of hormones in our body. I feel like we, we know a lot of the sex hormones, which is estrogen and testosterone and thyroid maybe. But there's many other hormones through our body that have different functions, right? From brain, neck, heart, renal, GI, it can con- all hormones are messengers from the brain to a specific place that has to take a message, right? So that's, that's uh, what a hormone does is a messenger. And when it's a, it, there's a very fine tuning in your body uh, on the level of hormones, that is causing the right things. But when there's an imbalance of that, either too much or too little, then it's when we see health problems or complications. And and those are the diseases that we treat. Okay. So when we think hormones, what kinds of um, specific functions that the public could, could understand? Like, obviously you focus on obesity, diabetes, and thyroid disorders. Um, but what are some other things where hormones are implicated? I, oh, I sort of think puberty. Um... Exactly. Good. So we can start from there. So in puberty, it's the hormones uh, that the person, the gender has that will help them develop the, the sexual characteristics of their gender, right? So estrogen during puberty is responsible for breast growth uh, to start a menstruation, uh, pubic hair, uh, and in males, it's the same thing. It's uh, responsible for uh, development of, of the physical characteristics of a male, right? So a facial hair, um, the dipping of the boys. And then if we move a little bit forward, hopefully not in puberty, but also fertility, right? So estrogen helps fertility and testosterone helps to make sperm. So they help with fertility. So from how you physically develop as a female or as a male, that's what hormones do. And then further along, it helps with uh, fertility, right? And reproduction. But it's not just thyroid also. There's a lot of women's health that has to do with hormones. And that's a part that I like because in every stage of a woman, the hormone can change, right? Your estrogen changes accordingly to your age. Um, so I have patients from 13 years old to patients there are in their seventies or sixties postmenopausal, right. And, and all of them at that period of their life, either because they have too much or too little, it's affecting their quality of life or their health. Yeah. So I also think, um, I think about metabolism too, when I think about hormones, but as you said, it's not just that. So, you know, a 13 year old, um, I'm going to guess that they're, they're not where they should be in terms of puberty and development. And you can tell me if that's the case, but then a 70 year old woman or 
or in my case, a 45 year old woman, um, you know, my hormonal issues might be related to being premenopausal. I hate saying that, but <laughs> that is the reality of the situation. So, um, can you give an example of what kind of hormonal issue a 13 year old would have? So PCOS is a very common hormonal issue, right? Or late puberty is also another thing that we see like late first period in women. Sometimes it usually can happen 11, 12, 13 years old. That's like the range, but maybe sometimes it happens at 17 and that's not normal. That's, that's, that's pathological. And also growth hormone is very important during puberty, right? So, and that gives you your height. I mean, height is determined by the height of your parents, but sometimes there's deficiency of growth hormone. And, and by doing that in puberty, if we treat that before puberty, actually, before the plates of the bones close completely, putting a, a person on growth hormone will help them develop their predicted height, right? And in women at that age, if they're not having periods or irregular periods, sometimes using birth control, that is estrogen and progesterone will help them regulate the period, right? Or PCOS when young females and uh, any woman of reproductive age can have PCOS. That means that they're having too much of the male hormones because that's another thing that is important. We as women, we make estrogen, but we also make testosterone. Same men. Men make testosterone, but they also make estrogen. It's just the, 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 the balance is different, right? And that's what makes them male characteristics and us female characteristics because we have more estrogen than testosterone, but we do have testosterone. And in problems like PCOS, there's a, a shift in the balance and they may have too much androgens or male hormones. And then later, like premenopausal or menopausal, then then we start decreasing the production of estrogen, right? So then we can go on estrogen replacement therapy, we're candidates, but then we have all those symptoms of, of no estrogen, right? The, the hot flashes, the mood swings, the period stopping, those things. So when does the average woman start to have that drop in estrogen? I, I think it's a great time to, to talk about that because actually menopause, so menopause by definition is one year without a period. Once that happens, once you've had a full year without a period, then you went through menopause, right? But actually the, the symptoms of menopause, they can happen up to eight years before that happens. And we call that perimenopause, right? So you may start having irregular periods. You, you still have some periods, but they're not as consistent as they were before. You start having some hot flushes, mood swings. So usually a normal menopause is around the early 50s. So we can think of perimenopause 45 and above, but it depends a lot on the age of your mother at what age she had the menopause. That's your biggest predictor is when you will go through menopause. Well, my mom was 50, which is that about average age? Average age. That's average age. I think she was. I'll have to check in with her. It might've been later. Um, so that's okay. wonderful. Just for you to know, I have patients that are 60 and they're still menstruating. So, I mean, menopause, we, we, in medicine, we, we, we give examples, right? But every person, every patient is completely different, right? I mean, is it necessarily good or bad? I mean, if you have a patient who's still getting their period at 70, is that bad? Does that mean something's not functioning normally? 70, I would say that's abnormal. 60, it's possible. And I, I mean, they're getting the estrogen that they need. So patients are happy, right? I mean, after, after that age, then it's, it, we wouldn't consider normal to have to somebody at that age be producing estrogen. And I'm not sure someone would want to get pregnant at that age. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So what can you do? Well, actually, let me back up a little bit. So if you are in perimenopause and you're on birth control, aren't you, is, is that sort of, um, is that affecting what your natural hormonal balance would be? Because you're basically taking hormones when you're on birth control, right? Yeah. So in, in perimenopause, being on birth control, it helps alleviate many of the symptoms. You're getting a little bit of estrogen. And let's say if you know, as an example, you, your mom went through menopause at 50, 
then at that age, we would stop the birth control, right? Like 49, 50 and see, and see what's happening with your body. But at the moment, it's actually helping you with some of the symptoms of perimenopause, right? Yeah. So I'm actually wondering if you were taking birth control, so you're getting a regular period, do you, you don't necessarily know what your period would be if you weren't taking it. So you might actually be a regular. Exactly. Most likely in perimenopause, we start seeing like you start skipping periods or you start having three periods per year, but with the birth control, you will be having it every, every month. Right. But when, when you reach the age 50 and you're still menstruating with the birth control, then we can't stop it there and see what's happening if you're going through menopause, right? Just to kind of test things out. So if you never stopped taking them, would you just keep getting a period or it would just eventually stop? I mean, it eventually, you will get some bleeding and some spotting. It wouldn't be a full period, right? But in that case, it's it's better to switch to hormonal replacement, right? Uh, The amount of of estrogen and birth controls is very small compared to what you would need at that age, right? Yeah. So it's like you're getting like halfway treated and not getting the full benefits of estrogen replacement, that that, that's what should be done at that age. Is there a way to just do a blood test and see if your estrogen and other hormones are where they should be and then adjust them from there? Of course, that's, that's what we always test. We test from brain to organ, right? So in this case, we, we check the sex hormones that are made in the brain and the sex hormones that are made in your ovaries, which will be the estrogen. And then we can, we can tell what's happening with your body. So that's how we make diagnosis in endocrinology always, not just in menopause and thyroid diabetes, uh, other problems is by blood tests, right? We, We check your hormonal levels in your blood. So can you completely reverse these effects of menopause? Like your metabolism changes, hot flashes, mood swings. And I've also heard depression and anxiety are associated with menopause. Can you completely reverse those things with estrogen? And insomnia. That's a number of, that's a very common, like it's been a trouble maintaining sleep. And yes, the answer is yes. By putting you back on estrogen, those symptoms go away. And that's the main purpose of uh, hormonal replacement. The problem is that a few decades ago, uh, hormone replacement got a, a really bad rep from a study that was done. And, and what that study showed was that many patients were having heart disease after being on estrogen, right? And the problem with the study is that it was the, the time that the, what we've now discovered is it's the timing of starting the estrogen, right? The guidelines said that if we started within 10 years of menopause, no more than 10 years, then we can still do the protective effects of the the benefits of estrogen. After 10 years that you haven't had estrogen in your body, there's already some damage in your arteries. There's more plaque, building more plaque from the lack of estrogen. And if we put you on estrogen 10 years later, then, then there is higher risk of cardiovascular disease. But if we start soon within a 10 year period or before the age of 60 from menopause, then you have all the benefits from estrogen, right? So all the studies that we're seeing now is that it's quite the opposite that we should put women on estrogen. And, and it's, it's very sad and it's very unfortunate because many women are not even offered. They like, it's not even mentioned. And, and of course there's some women that are not candidates. Like if, if a, the person had personally breast cancer or a first degree relative with breast cancer, that's one option. If they have history of blood clots, then that's another contraindication of being on estrogen. But otherwise, besides that, most, most women are would benefit from estrogen replacement therapy. That is really good news. And I'm very happy to hear that um, because I don't think menopause is something that anybody really looks forward to, largely because of all the side effects that are associated with it's- it. It's like the quality of life, right? I mean, it, it does decrease the quality of life. So by putting the woman back on estrogen, you return that quality of life that at age 50, they still want and they still need, right? 
Yeah. And can I get my metabolism back? Because I have definitely noticed that when I was in my 20s, even 30s, early 30s, mid 30s, I could just, you know, stop eating, not stop eating. I don't mean that literally. I mean, really reduce what I'm eating, be better with my diet and exercise. And I would lose weight pretty quickly. Now I feel like that has changed. It's I really cannot eat as much as I used to. I will definitely see it in my body. Can you talk I mean, about that? Yeah. I mean, aging is what decreases metabolism and, and also decrease of estrogen. It's not that you decrease your metabolism, but when there's no estrogen, there's more central deposition of fat. So the fat distributes differently, right? In a woman is more in the hips and in the breast. But when there's no estrogen, then most of the fat goes centrally, right? Um, and also, I mean, just from aging itself, our metabolism decreases because it assumes that we are not working as much or we don't need it as much as we did in our 20s or 30s. Um, but that's why uh, aging, you can see slowing down of metabolism. And then if you add that lack of estrogen or lack of testosterone in men, then that also uh, leads to more weight gain or more difficult to lose weight also. So the estrogen can help with that, but it's not a magic pill. It, it will help redistribute the fat. It will help with your metabolism a bit. But let's say, as an example, clinically, if I have a patient with obesity and she's menopausal, I don't expect that from me putting her on estrogen, the obesity will be resolved, right? Then we talk about obesity treatment. So yeah. it will help, but it's not going to be it if there's obesity or on the patient too. Okay. Well then I'm going to be there in about five minutes to pick up my estrogen. <laughs> I'm very happy to hear that, um, that this can help. So that's a good segue into the topic of obesity. Cause that is a separate issue from what we've been talking about. Um, I'm not quite even sure what to ask about obesity. I know it's a huge problem. Um, in the United States. I don't know if it's something that's a huge problem worldwide, but I know Americans typically don't, we don't all have the best diet. It is a worldwide problem, actually, obesity, unfortunately. And I think the best way that we can start talking about obesity is to give the, what's the significance of obesity, right? Or how do we classify obesity? Obesity is recognized worldwide by the World Health Organization, by the American Medical Association here in the United States as a chronic disease, right? So obesity is not a lifestyle problem. It's not what you're doing right or what you're not doing right, right? It's a chronic disease that as the name says it is chronic. So it's, it's something that continues um, and once we can say and accept that it's a disease and not a lifestyle problem, then we can treat, right? Because if you think about it, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, yeah, they are lifestyle related, but they don't have a stigma, right? We put people on medication every day and nobody's saying, oh, maybe you should try to exercise and not take the medication. And, and yes, granted, we always, we always recommend those things, in my case, I recommend my patients to eat healthy and exercise regardless of their medic of their health, right? Um, but there's no stigma in treating a diabetic. There's no stigma in treat. They don't. We don't see them as failure, right? Oh, you, you should have done everything you could to treat it. And another important thing of a chronic disease like diabetes, hypertension, and high cholesterol is that we put you on medication, we improve your numbers, but we don't stop the medication, right? We continue with it because it's a chronic disease. Same thing with obesity. So many times I have patients and they say, okay, when, when can I be off of it? Or what's going to happen when I be off of it, right? So we're still in that mentality and it's going to take, it takes process to, to change the, the, the way people see obesity, including healthcare, right? In insurances, healthcare, and then the general population. So when, whenever a patient asks me, I said, well, Ideally, it should be a chronic treatment, right? Uh, and I always have the, the, my first visit with my patients with obesity. I always have that discussion because I want them to start processing it, right? That there is an option. And, and I feel like it's, it's hopeful, right? Because before what we used to do is, okay, eat less, uh, exercise more, come back in six months. Uh, great, you lost the weight, bye. 
then you're on your own. And then what would happen? Then you regain the weight or even more, right? So I, I, I want my patients to see it in a different way that, hey, you, you're not going to be left alone to maintain the weight off because it's not just losing the weight, it's maintaining the weight off, right? So if we see that obesity as a chronic disease, we, we, we should start accepting treatment chronically, right? And another really important thing that I think people we think, oh, well, you're going to put somebody on medication for weight loss. What we've been doing for the last 40, 50 decades, it's patching all the complications from obesity, right? We learn to accept, to treat the complications from obesity with medications. But now we have treatment to treat the actual cause of all those complications that we were patching. So we just have to get comfortable with that idea, right? We're comfortable with treating the diabetes, the osteoarthritis, the, all, all the complications that we can see from obesity and we have medications for that. But when we say, okay, but actually I can treat your obesity instead of having to wait that you develop all these complications. And there's a, li a little bit of hesitance, right? It's like, oh, but why are you gonna put your medication for, for, to lose weight? Am I being lazy? Uh, did I failed? What are people gonna say that I took the easy way out? So we have to see obesity and accept obesity as a disease as we've learned to accept diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol. I'm glad you're drawing attention to that um, because I do think that the general public probably does view someone who's obese as someone who's just going to McDonald's and sitting on the couch and doesn't want to have a better diet or exercise. So can you tell us what is really happening with someone is obese? Is there, what has caused that? And by the way, our language has changed now. So we don't say, uh, he has, he's obese. We say people with obesity, right? Okay. Thank you for that. We're removing that, that category on the person. Yes. Right? We don't say patient, uh, obese patient. Now we said patient with obesity, right? Because it, 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 as I just saying, it was a disease, right? And yes. it's interesting what you, what you're asking me, because I would say 70% of my practice right now, it's obesity. So it's, which I, I, I like and enjoy a lot, but I always like to ask my patients at what age did, was weight a problem or how far can they remember that they had to watch what they eat or, or that they had to lose weight or maintain their weight. And they all start very early. They, this, most of them remember the age. Some say eight, I was eight, I was nine, I was 10, I was in middle school. So it's, it's, it's something that starts very early, right? And we know now that preconception can influence the weight of the offspring, right? So a woman that is not even pregnant yet, but whatever is doing prior to her pregnancy and during the pregnancy can determine and can affect the weight of the child. That's incredible. I didn't know that. So there's so many things, right? That, that science always is changing. Medicine is always changing. And, and, and thank goodness, we always know a little bit more and understand more. So obesity, what we now know is it's a multifactorial chronic disease. And by multifactorial, it says, it, it's just the name, it says it, right? There's multiple things that cause it, right? Mm -hmm. And to make it simple, one, of course, is lifestyle definitely it has has an effect but it's one third of the problem the other problem is genetics and that's what i'm talking about i mean how the mother weights of your parents of back uh, generations that can influence on your personal weight and then we have environment so we have lifestyle genetic and environmental factors. And by environmental factors, we, we can talk about how we're living in our environment now, right? The pesticides, chemicals, the water, the food that we eat, the processed food that we eat, the ultra processed food that we eat. Uh, so those things, many times we don't have so much control. Yeah, you can move, uh, but anywhere you're exposed, even 
plastic bottles when you were being bottle fed, you know, even the plastic layer, the BPA, we know now it's, it can cause obesity. So that's why I want always my patients to understand that, look, you could control your lifestyle, but you had no other control. You cannot control the other two thirds of the pie. Right. So if if, if you accept that, then I feel like people should be more accepting of treatment, right? Because it's not just you, what you can do or not doing. Well, is there some overlap between lifestyle and environment? I mean, do you have some control over the environment? Like you can choose not to eat processed food or cut back on that or not use plastics. Yeah, that, I mean, definitely awareness of that and, and, choosing to live more green, right? Or more eco-friendly, having plants in your home. And, and like when you paint your house that doesn't have the chemicals, the VOCs, and as you mentioned, not, not, not using plastic, using glass. So yeah, you can control those things. But unfortunately, there's no, not a lot of knowledge of it, right? So, so isn't, you're not thought about that in school, right? When, and, and that's another, that, another thing that we can bring in here, right? We don't teach about nutrition in school, which it, it blows my mind. How can we not teach kids how to eat right or how to make the right choices, right? We, can, we teach them how to use condoms, but how can we not teach them how to choose better of, of their food or what they're eating and in, in, in their environment. Right. Yeah. So right. those things they're there. There's, there's not a lot of awareness. Um, but yeah, people can move. You can, I mean, live in a farm and drink um, the milk from the cows and grass fed meat. I mean, ideally, but how, who can do what, how can we do that? Right. Like as an example, living in the city i live in new york city right so i may i order my meats from a local farmer right so i i i i, I have that control or i can do that 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 change I, I have control of that but for for me to have that control I, I had to have the knowledge right and i study this this is my specialty but people don't know about it right people don't know that they have other choices or be, or that they can choose better it's also expensive and not everyone can afford to do that. I mean, it's, I've seen this again and again, it's cheaper to go through the drive-thru at McDonald's than it is to go buy something in the produce aisle. And that's the food industry, right? I mean, we cannot talk about obesity environment without talking about the food industry, right? The food industry has zero concern of our health, right? Is whatever sells more is best for them. So high sugar, high fat, high artificial flavors, and and targeted to kids, right? So it's targeted to kids. It starts young to, uh, to learn how to eat bad because of the food industry. Yeah, it, it's sad. I guess when health is more important than money, that will change. I'm not sure when that will be. I don't think we're going to solve that on this podcast today. But it is important to mention, you know, I mean, I, some patients said, well, I don't have money for the, for the appointment or, but they buy the new iPhone, you know, I mean, anybody can spend their money however they want. Right. But I always say that where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, And it's, if you don't invest in your health, then everything else is, doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, that's true. You can always find, and it's the same with time. You, if you don't have time for it, it's not a priority. If you don't have money and I don't want to simplify it because I know some people really just don't have the money, but you're right. There are ways to find the money. And you know, it, it, it's, it's, but then I go back again to the food industry, right? Because why is it fair that somebody with money can afford good quality food and somebody who doesn't have money can only get processed cheap food, right? It's, 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 and the food industry is taking the work away from the farmers. So then it becomes more expensive for farmers to maintain organic local produce because we go, the, the food industry is the cheap, fast, quick, tastes good version, right? So I think there's many things beyond us back steps that would need to change. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting if you watch some of the documentaries that they have on Netflix. I can't remember specifically the names of them, but there's so many about nutrition and the meat industry and um, a lot of people advocating eating plant-based and the dairy industry and kind of how that all evolved. And it's really interesting to see how that's all happened. But for me, also talking about when some I have patients that tell me, okay, then I cannot buy organic or I cannot buy grass-fed meat. But there's always balances, right? And even with diets, I'm, I, 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 I'm not a fan of diets at all. I, I dislike diets completely because it's really uh, wishful thinking that a person is going to be able to maintain certain lifestyle forever and ever, right? Uh, uh, some people religion vegans and all of that yes but that's that's a little bit different that's how they're brought up but when we go into very restrictive diets it's very hard to maintain right so there, there should be a balance there should always be a balance if 70 percent of the time you're eating good quality food then that 30 percent of the time that you don't is not going to affect your health as much right yeah. And, you know, I even with myself, my own behaviors, I've learned that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You know, I don't have to say, okay, starting tomorrow, I'm never, ever going to eat, yeah. you know, chocolate ever again or cake or a cookie. It's not realistic. It's not going to happen. But if you can slowly make wiser choices, you know, um, I'm going to eat less bread. I'm going to eat less sugar. Um, I'm going to eat more whole foods. I, I am going to buy some things in the produce aisle. And kind of do it gradually. I found that that's much less of a shock to your to your system and your routine. And I always, I always like to give an example of like Italian dining to my patients, right? Like if you're going to have the pasta, don't have the bread, right? If you're going to have salmon, then have the bread. Or if you're going to have uh, the bread, then don't have the mashed potato, right? So choose your carb, choose, choose what, make it proportional, right? It's not, it's not like the bread, the pasta, the wine, and then the dessert, then don't skip the bread or skip the wine or skip the dessert if you really want to have the pasta and the wine. So it's just knowing to make small changes at the end of the day, it does make a difference. Yeah. That's really the lifestyle change. It's not the diet right? Like the temporary diet that I'm going to drop 10 pounds in a week, which I think is sort of impossible, but you know, we see those on the the cover of magazines. (laughs) Um, So how do you treat someone who has obesity? So that is um, very revolutionary because it's something that is just taking off. You know, we even now have the, the specialty of obesity medicine, which we didn't before, right? Anybody could treat obesity and we were not. Um, there's medications uh, that have been developed and they're not, we're hearing just about them, but they've been there for about 10 or more years, right? So I, I feel like it's, it, it has taken people this long to, to accept it. And even healthcare workers, right? Even physicians, some physicians don't know about them or depending on the, when they were trained, right? So um, we have medications that target different pathways of what can lead to obesity, right? If it's uh, compulsive eating, if it's slowing metabolism, if it's uh, losing the effect of satiety, we have medications that can help with satiety and uh, for longer periods of time with smaller portions of food. 80% of weight loss is diet is not exercise. Exercise is great for cardiovascular protection, for endorphins, for self-esteem, for energy, for releasing anxiety, right? But it's not the answer for weight loss. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I guess that's where the expression abs are made in the kitchen comes from. Exactly. So I always, I always tell when I'm, whenever I'm going to start a patient on, on weight loss treatment, I, I discourage to start any crazy exercise, right? Because you need a decreased caloric intake to lose weight. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to maintain an hour of spinning if you're eating 1,000 calories a day, right? 
And maintenance is where I, I say, okay, that's where I bring back exercise. Because if we start cutting back on the medications, then the exercise can balance that intake and, and burning of calories, right? So when someone who has obesity, when they lose a lot of weight, does their metabolism slow? And the reason I'm asking this is because I had read some articles that said a lot of the people that were on The Biggest Loser, I don't know if you've watched that show, that a lot of them gained weight back and it they attributed it to their inability to really burn off calories. They, they simply couldn't eat as much, um, very little. They could eat very little. Um, and they, according to these articles, that's why I'm asking you what you think. It kind of screwed up their metabolism. Well, I mean, to begin with, they lost the weight the way that we normally think they should, right? By increased exercising and, and eating less and, and that should be it. The level of obesity that those candidates had require and meet, meet the criteria for weight loss medication. So to begin with, it wasn't treated the right way because why we're thinking it's life, lifestyle, right? Yeah. So that, that's, that's, that's to tell you that obesity is a chronic disease. That's why patients, when they come to me, they've done Weight Watchers, they've done Slim Fast, every imaginable diet that you think that they, anybody could have done from the last 20 years, and they regain the weight because we're, we're still treating it as a lifestyle problem. We're, st we're still thinking of that, and it's not. It's, 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 it's a chronic disease. So those patients on the, on the Biggest Loser eventually they were going to regain the weight because it's a chronic disease. It's like diabetes. If they were diabetics and their sugar improved while they were in the program and then they stopped, then eventually their sugar will come back again because it was just not the diet or the weight, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's beyond the, the, the genetics, the environmental, the preconception things that we're talking about yeah. that don't have control. That's a good point. Thanks for pointing that out. It, that show really does just perpetuate that that idea that there's, these are just people that don't know. And, how to and not sustainable. I mean, who, how that is not sustainable. It's, it's, that's why extremes I dislike a lot because they're not sustainable. Extreme diets, extreme exercises, they work temporary, but long-term it's not sustainable. Hmm. That's really interesting. So um, just talking about metabolism in general, are there things that we are doing or are there things that we could potentially be doing to destroy our metabolism or, you know, adversely impact our metabolism? And then I guess the other side of that question is, are, what can we do to help maintain a healthy metabolism? So I would say the, the, the biggest one for any age, right? Not, not, not talking about us in the forties, but any age sleep right? Mm. Quality of sleep. So sleeping, having a good quality of sleep is, I would say is the number one thing to maintain your metabolism, right? Because if we don't sleep enough, if it's not, if we're not having a good quality of sleep, then our, that puts our body on chronic stress and chronic stress leads to chronic production of cortisol or chronic elevation of steroids that can lead to obesity, right? So, also stress is another if we if we think about physiological stress and physical stress lack of sleep and stress is the same because at the end it, it causes the same effect which is increase your cortisol chronically right so decreasing stress sleeping better uh those things can definitely help with the metabolism and then if at any point there's a hormonal dysfunction like if there's hypothyroidism hyperthyroidism menopause pcos then those hormones if we don't fix them then they're also wrecking your metabolism right so i am not it's, it's, it's very hard to say there's one thing it's multiple factors right that if i fix your hormones but you're still not sleeping and stressful all day then i'm we're just fighting 
to each other, right? So it, it's not just one simple answer. It's multiple things. I mean, meditation, yoga, mindfulness, religion, uh, having a good sleep hygiene, uh, all of those things are important for your metabolism. So those are, those, well, that's good news because those are things that we can control. Yeah, that's good news. But it's also, it requires some personal responsibility too. You have to make sure you, go, and I'm guilty of this. I'm a night owl. So I need to make sure I'm going to bed at a reasonable hour and getting all my sleep and doing my meditation in the morning. Yeah. Um, so I, we're always looking for some quick fix, right? Like lose 10 pounds in a week, right? That That's what we see on the magazine covers. Um, is there anything that we can do to rev up your metabolism or is that really just a myth? There are a few things that you can do, but I mean, it's not going to help you. If you have 50 pounds to lose, it's not going to help you lose the 50 pounds. It may help you not gain more, um, but things that we can increase our metabolism, caffeine, green tea, right? Um, cold temperature, like taking cold showers or being outside in the cold that increases your metabolism. Exercising can increase your metabolism too. Having more muscle, building muscle, right? Can also help increase your metabolism. But I wouldn't put it in a prescription, right? I think that's just part of a, of a healthy lifestyle regardless of weight, right? Yeah, it's not gonna create some dramatic difference. So there is no easy quick fix. So they need to stop putting that stuff on the cover of the magazines. Um, so I love your Instagram page. Thank you. And yeah. Well, I'll put a link to it for um, people who are listening so they can check you out. You're at New York Endocrinology and you spell out New York. And I saw a video you did very recently. You talked about something that you saw in the New England Journal of Medicine about GLP-1s. I know I sound like I know, I'm, I know what I'm talking about, um, but I really don't. So if I can just summarize it, you had explained that it was a hormone that affects weight loss. You know, and, and mm. it's, I'm, I'm glad it's out there. I'm glad that it's getting the, 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 the attention. And I even say that in my video, I said, finally, GLP-1s are getting the attention that they deserve. I've been using GLP-1s for 10 years. And the, the people that we use it, we know they work fabulous for weight loss, right? Hopefully now with a little bit more data, more physicians feel comfortable with it, right? The problem is sometimes we doctors, we, we don't feel comfortable giving the things that we don't know much about or that we don't have much experience giving about, right? So, no, so then it's there, but we're not using it. Just to, to give you an example, weight loss medication is the most underprescribed medication in the United States. And our number of obesity in the United States, it's about 30 to 40 million people with obesity, not overweight, obesity. And weight loss medication is the most underused medication that we have. Why is that? Because the stigma, because there's not enough experience primary care when the patients, like if they go to an endocrinologist, well, we have more experience with those medications, but sometimes primary care, they don't. And, and, and I don't want to blame the doctor that they're not up to date. It's sometimes they don't have time, right? A primary care has to talk to you about your blood pressure, blah, 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 that they, they, don't, they don't have that time to have that a specific conversation about it. I've had patients that tell me, you're the first doctor that talks about my weight when all the complications that that person has is because of their weight, right? So yeah. it, we need to talk more about it, but then we're so careful, right? It's like, oh no, body positivity. And I'm all for body positivity. I'm a hundred percent feminist, but we, we shouldn't normalize obesity, right? Yeah. So it's, it's it, there's a lot of pieces that need to be together to, to move forward and to, we have a solution, which is a treatment. It's just to the acceptance from the pop, the people and from healthcare, even health insurances, health insurances. And I'm going to name it blue cross and blue shield has weight loss medications as lifestyle drugs. Mm. So you, there's so many uh, 
things that we have to overcome for this to, to, to happen. But coming back to that article of the New England Journal of Medicine, so it, it showed very positive results of weight loss uh, with that drug, which is semaglutide. Um, and those medications were developed, developed initially for diabetes. And when we were using them for diabetics back 10 years ago, the patient was coming back with better sugar, but with weight loss. And every time there was more weight loss and there more weight. And then we started using it off-label for weight loss, independent of diabetes. Then eventually the obesity indication came on. And now this one, semaglutide, is great because it's a once a week medication. It's not a daily injection. It's not insulin. Many people think, oh, I'm getting a shot, it's insulin. It's not insulin. Um, but it works. GLP-1 has receptors all over our body. It's a hormone, right? And remember, hormones are messengers. So this is a messenger that goes to the brain, to the heart, to the gut, uh, and it, it gives a special message. Like in your gut, what it does, it increases satiety. So your stomach feels fuller faster for longer periods of time. So if you were able to finish three slices of pizza before with this medication, you may finish one, but you physically are satisfied. It's not like you're holding back like a regular diet, right? It's like, oh, I really want the three pieces, but I'm trying to lose weight. This you physically, you don't, you're, you're done. But it also has receptors in the brain center and the brain center and the appetite center to decrease food cravings. I, I like to explain to my patients, it's gonna take away that comfort of food or, or pleasure of food. If you're, if, let's say you're going to a restaurant, you say, oh, I'm gonna have my favorite dinner today. With the medication, you it takes it away. Really? You're like, Oh, lasagna? Did I like lasagna? Oh, well, maybe. It's really interesting. And, and when patients come back after like the first follow-up, they're like, we, we couldn't believe it that that was going to happen. And it happens. So this, this hormone, the, the GLP-1, they work in your brain and your appetite center. And they so it has a mechanical effect to decreasing how much food you can actually consume. But it also has a, a physiological and psychological way in your brain to not want to eat. Well, I think I need to get some of that. <laughs> and you said you take it. No, I don't take it. I give okay. it here. I've been using oh, it okay. on my patients for 10 years. Oh, I'm glad we clarified that. <laughs> I was going to say, that's I why need she it. I would take it, believe me. Oh, is <laughs> well, I mean, is this something that the average part, like if I want to lose 20 pounds, it well, would you know, let me take there, that? I have patients that reach out to me and I said, how much, how much weight do I have to lose to actually to, to actually be able to be a candidate for it, right? So we have guidelines. If, if your BMI is over 27, you meet criteria for weight loss medication, right? So now- okay, So all my girlfriends, you heard her? <laughs> for my, I have a lot of patients that are like in their forties and their fifties and that they truly physically have done everything that they can to lose the weight and we go back to aging and metabolism. I mean, in those patients, the medication will also help. And I, and I do that and I do that for those patients because I, they have tried. They've, they've tried for years and it's not happening and it could be from menopause, it could be just from aging, right? And in those patients, the medication also helps. So you, you don't have to have to lose hundred pounds to be a candidate for that medication. That's great. I'm so glad that you're talking about it. And I do wish we were hearing about it more. I know that you have to get back to your patients. Can I ask you one more quick question? Yes. What is your feeling about all these HGH clinics that are popping up primarily in Florida, but <laughs> um, all over for treatment for, I don't know, anti-aging, having more energy. What do you think about that? Human growth hormone? Oh, no, that's not, we don't approve growth hormone for, for um, anti-aging. The only indicate, there's only two indications for growth hormone, right? One is in puberty when there's a deficiency of growth hormone and you're, the, the person is not growing. And when there's a, a, what we call unhypopid, when the pituitary gland doesn't make any hormones, including growth hormone, those are the only, pretty much the only two indications for growth hormone. Off-label, we don't recommend it. The endocrine society, we do not, it's illegal basically um, because growth hormone can, let's say you have a potential cancer cell there. Growth hormone will help that 
mm. can still grow, oh. right? So there are some complications from growth hormone, right? Oh, thank you for sharing so that. Better than being on growth hormone, be on estrogen if you're deficient and be on testosterone if you're deficient. Those are approved. Those we know they won't harm you if you if you need them versus the growth hormone and they'll and you will feel as good as it, right? Yeah, I think before we didn't, we didn't think we have the options, especially with menopause and estrogen replacement. And then we were looking in other places, including growth hormone. But no, then put, let, be on estrogen, right? Be on estrogen replacement, which we know it's safe. And you, your, your skin will be back to where it was. Your libido will be back to where it was. Your energy will be back to where it was. You don't need to be on growth hormone for that. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's been a question that I've had for a while. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I thought this was very informative. I want to say something funny because I got interviewed for Bazaar magazine once only, which I loved. I was like a little girl, like, oh, I'm Bazaar. And it was about growth hormone and anti-aging. And there were like three pages of it. And of everything that I spoke, there was just one sentence of what I said. But it was the best sentence because it was, it said growth hormone is not approved for anti-aging and it's illegal in the United States to use for anti-aging by Dr. Rocio Salas. So even though it was just a sentence, but it was, it was an important sentence. So yeah, I was- I'm sure they could have gotten way more out of an interview with you. I'll take full advantage. <laughs> um, so just tell our viewers, how can they reach out to you if they are interested in working with you? So they can call my our, our number here in the office is 212-722-3636. My website is www.nyendocrinology.com. And also my Instagram, as you said, that's the, the New York is spelled out, New York Endocrinology. Uh, also, they can email my assistant, Anna, which it's ac at nyendocrinology.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.